So how do you feel people should approach your book today and how how is the intellectual dark web and a critique of the new right um, still relevant today? Well, I mean, I think uh, it, it is relevant, um, very relevant, arguably. But, I, you know, look, obviously, on some level, it's, you know, this we're in an extraordinary moment. And so I don't want to I, I think there's direct through lines to understanding some of where we're at that are in this book. And the book, the intention of the book was not just to be a polemic about a particular group of people. It was to use them as a launching point to make a bigger argument about the ideological failures of the time we're in mm -hmm. and the weaknesses of the left. And then, you know, give what, you know, hopefully is, is a little bit of help with a new framework. So I think if you look at it as that this, particular exercise in self-branding, I think I'm actually quoting from my book, <laughs> mm -hmm. is already pretty much done. Uh, you know, it was a flash in the pan in 2018. Um, now, that being said, I mean, all of these figures still certainly have influence and followers and, you know, have have real, you know, they're, they're, they're famous, you know, uh, kind of, you know, uh, famous members of the pundit class. Mm. Um, but I think the thing that I wanted to do in the book, and it might surprise some people, and I hope I pulled it off, was honestly, I mean, you know, I'm happy to do videos about how silly and dumb Dave Rubin is. Mm. Uh, I think there was particularly a couple of years ago, it was very important to lay out some critiques of Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and so on. But the real purpose of the book was actually to say what's interesting about this uh, intellectual dark web is that like they set themselves constantly say, there is a little bit of intellectual diversity in it. And in fact, there's an intellectual diversity that covers pretty much all of the bad ideas and ideological frameworks that we could use today mm -hmm. from, uh, let's say, the neoliberal center to the hard right. Another image I'll use in the book, which I think frames this, is Bhaskar Sunkara has a great uh, a notion of Hungary Station, Singapore Station, and uh, uh, Finland Station. Mm -hmm. And what he means, just really briefly, is Hungary is, say, that represents the Trump, Bolsonaro, Modi, Netanyahu world. That is the neo-authoritarian tendency. And that tendency is, to some extent, represented in the intellectual dark web. They would deny it fiercely, but there is some of the same preoccupations uh, about immigration, about lost hierarchies, you know, this type of thing. Mm -hmm. Then in Singapore, uh, you know, and again, this is a really, really broad way, but it, it fits, is the idea of let's have technical, scientific, uh, and, and capitalist competence at the expense of democratic process. And it's, that is certainly represented in the intellectual dark web. And then there in Finland station is, you know, it's Lenin going back to the Soviet Union and without litigating the entirety of Soviet history, which is mm -hmm. obviously not the time and place. We can all agree that on some level, 1917 represents a human impulse to more broadly democratize our lives. And obviously, I think that impulse, rep you know, manifests in any number of ways. Uh, from general strikes to the freedom struggle in South Africa to the social democratic agenda of Bernie Sanders to the presidency of Lula to indeed, you know, the Cuban revolution. Mm -hmm. And my book is an attempt to say that third option, that Finland station is not, you know, it, it's, it's got some momentum, but it does not have the power in today's world. The world is really a contest in terms of governing between Hungary and Singapore station. And also we need to build a really successful Finland station project. And the last thing I'll say really briefly is what it attempts to do uh, is say, is, is, is oh, I'll just leave it like this, is, is also address why is it that in the pop culture, and this is, I think has changed in the last couple of years to some extent, but it's still a, a factor. Why do these arguments find such enormous weakness in sort of liberal terrain? 
and what can be a deeply appealing answer that speaks to people's material conditions, but also has, by the way, a, a global answer, uh, not just a, a um, you know, one that responds in, in American terms, which is what most of these debates end up looking like. Okay, welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. Um, I'm Forrest Miller, and I'm here with J. Andrew World, and of course, Zero Books publisher, Doug Lane. Um, yeah, so I wanted to start with that because, you know, I mean, by the time this comes out, it might be uh, a few days past this, but, you know, on Tuesday was the year anniversary of Michael's uh, passing, and I felt like, you know, um, I, I felt like I, I, I needed to, you know, uh, talk about Against the Web with you a little bit and, and how that book came to pass because, um, I mean, number one, because Andy, of course, designed that beautiful cover for it. And mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, I think for for the book kind of gained momentum um, just as Michael had passed. And uh, and it, it seems like, you know, it's it's really like blown up like like so many people have, have read it, own copies. Well, um, I can tell you how it came to be that Michael decided to write about the intellectual dark web um, and how he decided to write a book for zero books. He you know, when he started the Michael Brooks show, apart from the majority report he started to hustle and he he reached out to a lot of different people to, to get on their platforms and to make connections. And I was one of those people. I was really actually flattered that someone from the majority report of Michael stature was bothering with the little YouTube channel and small imprint. And, you know, uh, uh, so, but, uh, we became friends out of that. I mean, I had him on a, a couple of times and, um, uh, I invited him to go to uh, a, a, a conference um, in Boise, Idaho, uh, on the topic of Jordan Peterson and trying to respond to Jordan Peterson. Um, but I had been invited to, and then I invited him. Um, and so it became a natural thing for him to write a book for Zero Books. That that that's actually one of the things I do with um, the podcast, and is. I interview people who I hope I might get books from, or I try to vet people as to, to get books from. And so that, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, like Todd McGowan was recently on the podcast, you know, live stream or, or, you know, the video, he did a video with me and he's going to write a book for us now. You know, that's what came out of that conversation. So yeah, it's, it's a successful, I, um, Michael Albert is going to has written a book for us, and it started with a, a an interview. So I, that's he's, something he's I a, do. He's actually he's a super interesting guy. Um, yeah. I think the second episode of of Ben's show that I live produced was when they went back and forth about uh, participatory economics, and yeah, like the first question I, I jumped on, and I think in any show it felt comfortable asking was asking him about um like what the actual political system would look like, and he was like, "That's an interesting question. We'll have to figure that out." <laughs> <laughs> huh well yeah no he's he he's a a, a long-term american radical uh you know he's been around he did z magazine he, he was an editor at south end press he's friends with chomsky i'm really glad to be publishing his book and it is on paracon uh, but back to michael um i was i suggested to michael that he, he write a book about the intellectual dark web because uh, we had been getting some success on YouTube critiquing Jordan Peterson. There was a lot of interest in the intellectual dark web. And I thought he was the perfect person to stand up against Sam Harris, maybe in particular, but and Dave Rubin. Um, and he was per perfectly positioned to, to launch uh, uh, a, a counter to, to the IDW. Um, what happened was the book took a little longer to write than we didn't initially anticipate it. So by the time the book came out, the intellectual dark webs day in the sun was almost over. And we were a little nervous about that, but there was a lot in Michael's book and there's still a lot in Michael's book. That's not just about the intellectual dark web and his critique of the IDW went well beyond just critiquing the individual personalities, but you know, it's, it's worth reading and will continue to be worth reading. Um, uh, yeah, but working with Michael was, uh, great fun he was also he was a little bit of a diva but but he was um uh he was always making jokes uh that 
at my expense that I had to laugh at. So that, <laughs> so yeah, I, I kind I of, that. I kind of got the, uh, a lot of the technical side of his, I, I don't know if I'd call it demoness, but I was the, I mean, I was his, uh, YouTube guy and I was his, um, like editor. So like for, uh, for all of the TMBS videos. So, um, I kind of got like the, the everyday, like, like, all right, how are we doing? How's the analytics looking? How, like those kinds of texts. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that he was difficult at all. It was just that he was really ambitious and yeah. really confident. He had a healthy and, ego. Yeah. He was. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> no doubt. He'd, uh, um, he'd constantly, he constantly texts, uh, He'd be like, "We're really doing this, bud. We're gonna, we're gonna get this, like with a bunch of exclamation points." And I'd be like, "Yeah, right." But, yeah. Show, but the show was like yeah. taking off at the same time, so it's like a realistic. It's like a realistic confidence. No, no, he was doing great. Um, it, you know, the world was robbed of Michael Brooks, but Michael Brooks was also robbed of his future, and you know, and the realization of his ambition. He was going to go places. He was going yeah. places for sure. And it feels like, and, in a lot of ways, uh, you know against the web is kind of a, a, a manifesto, I guess, laying out um, both, you know, I mean, arguments against the IDW, but also how, uh, you know, uh, like future groundwork for, for Michael's uh, political project, which constantly was kind of in flux, I guess, as he, you know, expanded, um, as he expanded his reading and like, as he expanded uh, how he was thinking about things. And he was someone that really could like absorb different ideas and like, and make them his own in, in a sense of, like I, he was never like he was never uh, stuck in any I guess ideological like pigeonhole. Like his his mind was constantly expanding, and his ideas were constantly expanding. And I really liked that about working on the show because you know there were times when I mean it would just be obviously ID, IDW dunking, but like you know more and more he would he would, his like it was almost like nation by nation his uh, ideas about like what um, like what what each country in Latin America for instance or like what each country in Africa like. As, as time went on, as he met more people and had more conversations, it was constantly like a growing uh, project, I think, in his mind, um, which you don't see very often. I think people get stuck in their in their ideological, like uh, like an ideological bubble, and they don't expand past it. Michael was constantly mm -hmm. expanding past it. Yeah, yeah. No, he was amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the his book did well, and I think it would have done well regardless, uh, but it, uh, it really – it's troubling to me how at zero books we've had two authors become major sellers for us through death that would be mark fisher and now M michael brooks and um i'm really trying to come up with a better marketing model than having to <laughs> have the authors uh die in order for their books to sell i'm getting um, flashbacks to that second life sketch where they were um uh, they had uh, my um, Dana Carvey was this rock star and they're just like, okay, you see this chart, look at how big Jim Morrison is after he died. But look <laughs> at, um, uh, oh, I forget the seventies rock star that, that they picked. Like notice his career just like, uh, you know, fizzled out right here. If he died, you know how big he'd be today. <laughs> so our plan for you is to die. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and but I, you know, that's not also, the case with Michael. Michael was going was going to go out. He was not going to. This was yeah. just the beginning for him. It also, it also kind of. I mean, you know, as the left kind of splintered uh, at the end of his life, and it was, you know, it, everything was like he had no, like I feel like with with Mark Fisher, um, the 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 whole like his his mental health was obviously intimately tied with his work. Like mm -hmm. you know, uh, as his depression got worse, like for, at least from from what I've read of his work, because I've read you know. Uh, like a fair amount of it like as his depression got worse his introspection about the left and like his work kind of got better which is like you know that's not really a model i think that's sustainable either but um no. but with michael you know this really felt like a beginning um for him and it, it's it's really you know as the left is splintered you know every kind of leftist faction um goes you know i think michael would agree with me about this, in, <laughs> in, in this. and it's it's tough to see that and it's tough to see that in like intra-left debates where michael would have wanted no part in that i'm like you know like like the truth is when when things like um you know like force the vote or something like that happened michael probably would have gave his opinion but not weighed in on individual personalities and kind of as as the careerist model of like because you know uh, i feel like there was a there's a long time during the the bernie campaign um where you know left media was kind of not harmonious maybe but like all kind of shared the same set of goals and as that's very much not been the case and as like the incentives kind of take over as in like 
people wanting to build their media careers and taking a, an ever an ever shrinking, I guess, piece of the pie. Um, everyone kind of wants to claim people that can't say something for themselves now uh, as their own. And it's frustrating to see that, I think, because I think in Michael's case, he would have wanted no part of that. Yeah, you know, I, I remember talking to Derek Varn uh, probably around the time that Michael's book was coming out or maybe a little before that and saying, you know, when Trump is gone, this big left media moment will go with him. <laughs> and uh, and I think if Bernie would have won, it would have I would have my prophecy would have been proven wrong that, in fact, the left media would have been absorbed and instant and corporatized and institutionalized and, you know, been it would have changed. Everything would have changed. Um, but I don't think that was ever really in the cards. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a minute there where it seemed like it was a, a distinct possibility, but I also think that it would have been um, a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, harder to, you know, as Bernie's agenda maybe didn't pass the way that it should, um, you know, with him in office. And as people started to kind of get disillusioned with it, I don't know if, you know, things would have splintered into, into factions that way. Too. Oh, well, there would have been those who became white house leftists, you know, <laughs> and, and would have had plenty of money and there would have been a different floor and a different ceiling. You know, I just, yeah. there would have been a lot more power on the, social democratic left and yeah yeah for at least a while but in a in maybe in four years it would have you know all blown up as bernie lost for a second you know election or died or whatever but anyhow enough of the uh, alternative future let's talk about local hero i want to talk yeah. about my movie <laughs> <laughs> rather than looking to talking heads and politicians we can get a better understanding of the difficulty we're in by considering how this contradiction between tradition and progress appears or appeared in art. For example, Bill Forsythe's 1983 independent film, Local Hero, offers a gentle and charming way to think through our collective and my personal conflict. It was about an, an oil man, uh, or rather a Scots accountant actually, who in his part time negotiated probably the best deal that the, that the British National Oil Corporation ever, ever negotiated. And it was just this weird idea that, and they used to have to break off negotiations while the members of his council who were farmers went off to milk the cows and everything else. And the idea of these Americans from, I think it was Texaco in that particular instance, having to sit around up in the Hebrides while the, while the people they were negotiating with went about their daily chores and then came back to the negotiating table, which was the village hall, I thought was a, a rich vein. And that's where we started. In the movie, the fictional town of Furness is presented as a Scottish utopia. The people there are rooted to the land to their history, and to each other. And while their world together is small, it is not parochial, but rich. The protagonist, on the other hand, is an oil executive from Texas. He's a jet setter, whose apartment is set above the Houston skyline. He is cut off from himself and others. He is shown talking to his colleagues from behind glass. He is always on the phone. Read right on its surface, the film is clearly a celebration of the simplicity of village life and a condemnation of the complexity and alienation of the modern world. But it is not just that. When taken in its entirety, the movie offers the viewer a kind of solution. The movie could not exist but for the conflict between the Texan oil man and the villagers. There would be no movement, no development, except for the starting point of modern alienation. And rather than suggesting that Furness is an alternative to Houston, by the end of the movie, we receive a moment wherein Furness is in Houston. We are offered the feeling of melancholy as a happy ending for the film. We are given permission to enjoy the way a rooted life is denied to us. It would be easy to decide that Local Hero is fundamentally a conservative movie. Its soft critique of capitalism not only relies on a fantasy version of rural life, but ends up as an ode to tourism. The last shot can be seen as capturing the rewards of a good vacation. However, on the level of affect, the film's compensations are, from my point of view, necessary. We need supplements like these as we lose our rootedness, as we contend 
with lifelong alienation. The culture war rages on, and Forsyth's charming little movie has largely faded from memory. And yet, the need for these sorts of supplements becomes more pronounced every day. And it's in this way that the culture war matters, and it demonstrates why both sides get it wrong. So what did you guys think of Local Hero? I didn't start off enjoying the movie, but like as the movie went on and you kind of got the the pacing of it, it, it was kind of interesting. And it was a, it was a fantasy film, really. Uh, you know, it was a, a lot of Scottish folklore about the, 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 uh, the silky people or however it's said, I can't remember. It's been a while mm. since I watched uh, song of the sea. So um, I quite apologize for that. I think that it is a fantasy film, but it also has uh, a deep kind of cynicism to it. Um, that uh, I mean, that I think that we talked about uh, the other day with, I mean, Repo Man, and we've kind of been having this like long-term conversation about this um, 80s cynicism and also just in general, like as kind of we've made this turn towards neoliberalism, like uh, the the cynicism in general that, you know, it, it's interesting that the, the villagers all want to be millionaires secretly. Like they're willing to give up all of those cultural elements for like a shitload of money, which makes sense because, you know, it seems like their life isn't easy there. They're kind of just, you know, everybody's doing every job in the town. It's like a really tight-knit community and like uh, but but at the same time, like it, there's like that that deep cynicism that you expect that there's going to be like somebody who's maybe holding out, and at first it doesn't seem like there is until you know um, they find out finally that uh, that Ben owns the the beaches. Like every 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 single villager is just like, let's get this money. Like <laughs> yeah 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 no, I mean it's uh, uh that's one of the things that's it is very eighties in that way, um, I suppose. Bill Forsyth. Uh, is an interesting director. He started as doing um, commercial documentaries, or uh, and but scraped another, uh, scraped up enough money to make a feature film on his own for like a couple thousand dollars with with a theater troupe, and it was about working class kids trying to steal uh, um, a bunch of uh, rob a warehouse full of uh, kitchen sinks and sell it in the black market to get out of. Um, their poverty. I haven't seen Guinness, that one. You got a Guinness Book of World Records record for it. I found it last night. I was watching oh, yeah? an interview. With, yeah, I don't. I don't know what the record was for, but that movie apparently like made one, which is kind of funny. Maybe for the least expensive movie to do well. I don't know something. But anyway, um, I haven't seen that one. The the his big hit movie that put him on the map was called Gregory's Girl, which is about middle class teenagers and a. a, a a teenager named Gregory and, and his, his falling in love with the, uh, uh, one of his teammates on, on the football team, uh, this woman, the one girl on the football team. Um, and, uh, and that's a charming little movie. Um, local hero, uh, is, you know, very much in line with other with the rest of his work in so in, in so much as it's a com it, the, the comedy is understated it's a little bit cynical there's a political dimension to it um there's a commentary on on modern life the thing that might be most interesting about bill forsyth is that he was not a movie person like he didn't go to them come to the movies because he was in love with with cinema he it was a calculated career decision but he was mostly thinking of himself as a writer or as interested in literature um and so uh yeah i i feel like um when you look at bill Forsyth's films um i'm not sure how interesting they are as films but they're really interesting as as stories and um uh, and I guess you're interested in theater, maybe even, you know, as in, uh, and narratives. Um, and, uh, uh, I watched them when I was a kid, you know, I was 10, 11, 12 when I saw local hero. So my connection to the movie is, uh, personal. And also it, it has to do with feeling like I was seeing something of quality, something that wasn't Hollywood something that had depth to it and I was able to understand it even though I was 12 or, you know, it was, it was funny and, and, and light. Um, so yeah, I, I've, uh, 
found myself over and over again returning to Bill Forsythe's films. It, the other interesting thing about him is he quit. He, after he tried to go to Hollywood and make a movie called Being Human, starring Robin Williams, amongst other people, and that didn't do well, and they put the uh, studio um, mucked about with uh, the film, he decided to walk away from making movies. At least he made one other film after that, and but he hasn't done. He doesn't. He doesn't like making movies. <laughs> but there's uh, um there's a a thing that I don't want to play it yet until we talk about the movie a little more. But um there's a, a video I found from the BBC where he revisits the town they shot um local hero in, and mm -hmm. I think you can already tell it's kind of weighing on him because um at one point the the guy the guy who's interviewing him is like one of the film guys for the BBC who apparently is mm -hmm. like really really into it. Like he claims he's seen it like hundreds of times, and he takes him mm -hmm. to the to the um village that they shot it in. Um, and he's like, he's like, this movie made me laugh and cry and like the whole movie. And he's like, he's like, I hope I can do that again one day with one of my movies, but I don't know. Like he, you can tell, like, I think that the, you know, the, 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 the criticism, I guess of it is kind of, or the criticism in general of his film career is already kind of weighing on him. I think in that moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this was well, was this, uh, well past the point Was this like, uh, in the 90s that this was happening, or was this pretty recently that he was going to this town? I think it was pretty, like, in the last 10, 15 years, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because it was the 20th. So he, I don't think he has any plans to make any more movies, but maybe maybe he does. But Well, the other thing, too, is, is the way the, uh, the, the movie business has changed. I remember uh, I was living in Baltimore, so John Waters was uh, on a lot of my uh, local media. And uh, he was talking about how he just can't get movies made anymore because the studios don't want to produce something that's, uh, you know, in, in that price range that he does, you know, the, uh, the, the mid budget movies anymore at that point. Yeah, no, I, it's absolutely a different, uh, I mean, it was moving in that direction steadily and steadily and steadily since this, since Jaws, right. Yeah. The, moving more and more towards big budget, but now we're at a point where if you can't, envision a franchise coming out of a movie and maybe it's not worth investing in or something um yeah but uh no yeah, but so local hero is everything like uh today's like uh films that dominated by the marvel universe is not right i mean it's slow paced mm -hmm. and um it's small and it and it's not uh it, it doesn't have a very strong plot the story is is meandering you know it there's a story for sure but it doesn't resolve exactly yeah. at least not in, in any big climactic way or at least um, not in a way that we would feel result like that that is resolved like you know it doesn't resolve in some big moment where um you know he realizes well he realizes things about himself obviously but that is kind of snatched away from him when his boss inevitably shows up and then has a similar, like, you know, a similar cathartic moment, I guess, in, in, in the space. But since he's the one with the money and like the power is just like, no, you go, you go back to, you go back to, uh, Houston and I'll, I'll stay here and I'll, I'll fulfill my fantasy of, you know, yeah. creating this, uh, you know, getting in touch with yeah. the sky. The, the <laughs> boss's ego is what stops the oil refinery from going in. Right. Yeah. He wants to see that, get, get that comet named after him. So he has enough money to, just shelve a oil refinery project and make a, his own little personal, uh, you know, ob observatory instead. And it's like, yeah, that, is that really a, a happy ending? Well, kind of, but, but I mean, um, you know, depending on, on, I guess for who, like, you know what I mean? Like, cause you know, I, I think that, uh, throughout the movie, um, throughout the movie, like, I think different people have these, like, it's almost like this is like a, a fantasy, like a fantasy village where people kind of realize um you know what like what they wanted and like they have these different uh moments of like when, when he's drunk and he's like you know i'll take your life to the to the um guy who's mm -hmm. like you know literally playing it's a wedge. yeah that's what uh, from star wars <laughs> so i i think that who you know, what it, who who was who it uh wedge the uh the x-wing pilot that's in all three of the original trilogy oh um, really He's in. Yeah. He's in this. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's he's the uh, he's the um, innkeeper slash uh, uh, banker guy, the, the one doing. Yeah, the you you wouldn't know that he was such a good actor if you'd only seen him in the Star Wars movies. I know, like 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 I'm watching this going like, why didn't we get like the Wedge solo movies in the '80s? Like that would have been freaking awesome, having him be like James Bond, uh, in in space. I, I mean, 
you know, I'm sorry, but the little nerd in me was just died a little seeing how great he was in this film. His his yeah. character also has almost like a Monty Python esque quality, where you know every time he walks into a place, the guy's working there, and he's like, you know, even like dressed differently. Um, and, and he, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has a he has a, a charmed life, really. You know, he's got a, a great wife. He's got a, a, a nice community. He has a, he's the coolest guy in town, probably. You know. <laughs> um, well, so. one of him. One of him is. I don't know. It would be, yeah, right. be funny if, like, if, if, if like everybody like thinks that him like what, his accountant version is cool, but like his uh his like innkeeper version isn't. They're like, ah, oh, fuck that. Or I think you flip that. <laughs> the, the barkeep version of him is cool. yeah. Yeah. It also feels like everybody in in that town not only takes turns playing every role, but like everybody takes turns working at the bar because there's that other there's another guy that um is working in like pretty much every other scene that is also oh, the, a barkeep at a yeah. That's true. <laughs> And then nobody knows who the baby belongs to either. Yes, right. I mean, <laughs> just the, the town is not the town is not utopia, right? I mean, it, it's 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 despite with with all its warts, it's a it's a good place to be, you know. Um, and uh, but it also only works that way because of the context of the film of it, the threat of it being taken away. I think. Well, I think part of it too, just, just to me and a uh, very hot take here with, with the movie is that uh, they were all silkies that, that they were all, you know, sea lions uh, uh, who shed off their, their skin and were doing this to preserve the area in a, in an eighties utopian kind of thing. It wasn't necessarily about the money. It was about not having the uh, uh, oil plant there. And it was this big uh, master manipulation. Cause at the end of the film, the town seemed empty. Um, was it because they all moved out because of the money or did they all back on their sea lion skin and return to the ocean? Like the, uh, <laughs> okay. I, did you forget to take your medication this morning? No, th th that's not what happened in this film. Okay. The, 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 you need the, to go back the, and watch it. <laughs> no, no, no. I've seen it lots of times. The last shot is also the very, the last shot where the phone's ringing, um, is the an identical shot to when they first right before they first drive into town um so it's not we're not meant to think that the town's abandoned okay it's just that you know one's around the phone booth at that moment it, um and Which is they're not all they're not all mythical creatures the only one who might have been a you know has a hint of the mystical about her is the uh marine biologist who you know has webbed feet but we're not we're not supposed to think they're all from under the ocean or something. Um, <laughs> I, would, uh, I would say that I would say that um, on on the beach, uh, that guy has a little bit of a mystical quality about him too. Um, ben, I think was his name, uh, uh, sitting on the beach and like having that connection to the land. That you know, it, it's something that you know, we talk about like um, indigenous people a lot and and connection to the land. But like you know, but like at, at the same time, you know. Uh, I think there's a Scottish connection to the land, like you know, um, since they're kind of a Celtic, a Celtic uh, descended, um, you know, you know, nation of people. That there's a, there probably like there is this connection to the land that he has that is almost like indigenous in that way. Well, I mean, um, the road signs leading in there too is also uh, in Gaelic. Yeah. Yeah. So and, you it's, know, not it's... Of, and it's not one of his languages. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, yeah, Doctor Who didn't have the TARDIS at the time. Yeah, so yeah Peter Peter Capaldi is in it. Um, that's I think his first acting role is in Local Hero, or one of them because um, he was a he baby. Was, <laughs> yeah, he was really young. I love I love his uh his running when he runs away and he runs away like this every single time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that I think it's also uh it's it's very interesting to me that um. You know, they're all like, everyone in that village is willing to sell their property pretty like almost everyone. You know, it's like mm -hmm. life is obviously like the like the Russian guy says, life is hard here. Like, you know, um, so for like for them, if you think about living there, um, living like there, if, if your families live there for a long time and you live there and you're kind of just living off of fish and you know the same like 20 people and you're kind of in the middle of nowhere and like you know, people don't probably come through that town very often. Um they don't even seem to really have like a tourist, like they're, they're not even like a, a tourist really hot spot. Um, the only guy that really seems to come regularly is the Russian guy that, that fishes off the coast there. So, you know, I think they're willing to, to part with this, uh, with their village pretty, pretty quickly. 
but it's interesting that it's the Americans who who come there kind of looking for conquest that end up being like well one uh, American um I guess the boss too yeah yeah no so but those are the only two Americans that we really have any kind of relationship to in this movie um they both kind of become enchanted enough with it that they're like because you you think that you think that you know uh when when the guy's like there the entire movie, you think that he's gonna try to fight for it, and he doesn't fight for it, and the boss is is, is just like, you know what? Let's make an observatory instead and, and keep things. So I really like it here. Yeah, <laughs> it's an unexpected yeah. ending. Yeah. What did you think of the uh, the psychiatrist in the movie? I it was Monty Python esque again. I came in here for an argument. Oh, oh, oh! I'm sorry. This is abuse. Oh. <laughs> oh, I see. That explains it. Yeah. Oh, no, you want 12A next door. I see. Yeah. Sorry. Not at all. No, that's all right. Yeah, yeah I don't it, think the joke was set up as very well, but, like, once you figure out what was happening, it was it was actually kind of funny. Um, yeah. I, I wonder if there's, like, a cut of this film where, the you know, because I imagine there's probably some studio interference with uh, with some of, the, some of the jokes didn't quite land necessarily, or, or they weren't, like, telegraphed properly there's some interesting or or maybe uh inept cuts yeah here and there and i don't know if it's the filmmaker or the studio because because you can go either way without uh well i I mean it could it could be it's it could be also that it's just um well no i mean i i i noticed it uh i made my kids watch this movie recently um uh and th- that's my daughter's in town, so she came by, and, we, and my two sons are still living here, and we all watched Local Hero, and um, they were getting up and going to the bathroom or going to the kitchen, or you know, they were a real, little restless through the movie. But my um, son Simon said, "This movie's moving really fast," which was not what I would have expected him to say. But what he meant was he said it right after there had been a kind of abrupt cut. And there, uh, there are a number of those really abrupt cuts. There's one where uh, McIntyre is explaining um, that his his real name is Hungarian and he can't even pronounce his real name. It's not McIntyre at all. And his parents changed their name to McIntyre thinking it was an American name when they immigrated. <laughs> and, um, and that line said, and then it's a really fast, it, there's not a fade, it just cut. And there's someone talking. Um, in I think it's the psychiatrist, maybe. Um, and he was like, "Oh, this is moving really fast." But what he meant was that the transition was really abrupt, and yeah. um, and that just happened. Doesn't happen all throughout the movie. That just happens uh, here, or there at the beginning. And I don't know if that was a, like a stylistic choice or if that was um, a, a, the a product of something being removed that the studio didn't like i doubt that or the studio um, said we need to make this this you know you can't be longer than this amount of time and they they, they made a weird cut which yeah well, one, one, one i also think our sensibility has changed maybe because of the digital era yeah. we're in one one yeah. interesting thing is that uh i guess they tested it in front of an audience and um you know so the audience talked to them about it and uh, they made a lot of revisions based on what the audience had to say about it. They like gave them questionnaires. Uh, that was one of the the things in the. Did, there's a making of ma- documentary. They they made they made revisions. Did they say like what kinds of revisions they made? Um, I so it was like a it was like an hour long documentary. So I didn't watch all of it. But I have to watch that. Yeah, it's it's on YouTube the entire thing. But at one point they said that they had tested it in front of an audience and changed lines and stuff based on. Because they didn't know how all the stuff was going to land with people, since it's like you know, I mean, it's a very niche movie. It's not like you can make a movie and it's just people in Scotland watching it, and they're like, "Look, right. that's that's my town." Like, and <laughs> but after <laughs> after Gregory's Girl, though, which did really well in the United States and your and all of Europe, but you know, at least for that level of movie, um, there was a sense that you could that Bill Forsyth could do this and cross over. You know, that it wasn't he wasn't just a niche director he was a major director for you know in people's minds like um because he had a, a certain amount of commercial success and a whole lot of critical success um you guys should watch gregory's girl and comfort and joy sometime if you but this one local hero is the best i think of his movies what about uh, gregory's two girls i haven't seen that one okay that was 
that was 1999 that was uh after being human um i should watch it sometime i guess but I um, never another, uh, another thing that you did that you uh made a vi i think a couple of videos on and i know that uh varn was thinking about a lot was um the the when when uh can't get you out of my head came out uh earlier this year mm -hmm. um and it kind of had that part where um he's comparing uh He's comparing like the the Scottish Highlands and um, like British like when when the British Empire kind of faded away, they started creating these stories that were like a romanticized version of what village life in England was like. And there were all those movies that kind of um, were around like went around that theme. And it feels like this is kind of a, a subversion of that in a way um, that like genre of movie because it, it has that like idyllic uh, like like Scottish Highlands uh, or Scottish coast, I guess um, like. Like almost like dream fairy tale quality to it, but at the same time, like you realize pretty fast that like these are these are all just people, and, and it's kind of cynical, and and they don't necessarily want to be there if if they could be anywhere else. Right. And, it's you know, so. have you ever seen the movie Brigadoon? No. Brigadoon is about a mystical Scottish uh, village that you know only appears every hundred years or something, and the the main characters. I, I it's been a long time since I've seen it. But it, it emerges from the mist, and then you can go, and it's utopia. It's a beautiful, wonderful place. And a man goes uh, to Brigadoon um, and falls in love and has to decide whether or not to stay in Brigadoon or not. But uh, but everyone there is, you know, perfectly happy. Um, and so this was like a, a reversal of Brigadoon. I mean, he mentions uh, uh, yeah. Brigadoon, or Bill Forsyth does in some of the interviews. Um, I wanted to play. This is this is my this is my favorite uh, scene in the movie. I think out of everything. Could you imagine a world without oil? No automobiles. No paint. I'm Polish. No ink. I'm nylon. No detergents. No specs. You get any pass specs. No polythene. Dry cleaning fluid. And waterproof coats. And a dry cleaning fluid and of oil? Oh, yeah, I did not know that. Um, I didn't know that. You know anything about the stars? No, what? Why? I want to check something out. I'll get a book or something. I don't know. I was just, I, I like that. I like that moment a lot because. I think that there's some, I mean, there's obviously heavy environmentalist themes throughout the movie, which I think precede um, a lot of, you know, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of jokes about the oil industry, obviously, and um, how bad it is for the environment, because, you know, uh, this is such an idyllic, like coastline, and they're just gonna, you know, they're just gonna rip it up and, and drill for oil inside of it. So obviously, that's the theme throughout the movie. But also, just in general, you know, um, this, these like beautiful vistas, like the beautiful, uh, you know, like the beaches and the sky and everything. And they're just talking about oil and like, you know, but also like the, there's an 80s theme of like, you know, people really couldn't imagine the world without oil. And they couldn't really imagine um, this, this place where like, where, where things changed because, you know, things just kind of felt the way that they were and business was such a powerful force. And when people started really embracing that, um, you know, it, it became for them almost like they could, they could be walking past these beautiful things. And it's just like, they're talking about business and there's no real recognition that, you know the coastline is so beautiful and that this is just going to destroy it like it's just like well you know we need oil and can you imagine the world without it like there's just so many things that we make from it and but that coastline gets to him eventually you know the the beach and the water he ends up collecting seashells by the end of the movie yeah well He's that's that's the it. that's the environmentalist part of it you know like the mm -hmm. but but just that scene where they're just like like kind of vapidly talking about the world without oil as you see that you know that, that the cost of the oil is no it's a great little scene yeah it's yeah. a great little scene um uh what's my favorite scene from the movie um i think i like the scene where they go up to the church uh and all the uh, you know the whole town is in that church and uh the the preacher the, the priest comes out and talks to them and uh there's a he says well, I will be as discreet. He says, the McIntyre says to the priest, well, we're going to buy this whole place, but, you know, be discreet about this. Don't talk. Don't talk about this. And he says, well, I'll be as discreet as the next man, but news travels fast in this village. Yeah. And someone inside the church says, what did the 
What did the priest say? He, says, <laughs> he said, news travels fast in this village. And then they so, all go, I, or something like that. But it's also interesting. They sent the, uh, they sent the priest out to talk to him, considering the priest is, you know, another person from a foreign, uh, a foreign country who's changed his name to fit in as a Scottish person. So in some ways, he's kind of the parallel character. Like, you know, if Mac had just stayed in that town and if he had fulfilled his his dream, I guess, like it seems like the, the priest kind of arrived there. Uh, and then and then, you know, as like a young as like a young, like priestly scholar or whatever, arrived there and then like never changed um, or, or never, you know, like never, never left. And it, and it feels kind of like that moment where and, and he's changed his name to fit in the same way that, you know, Mac's family's changed their name to a Scottish name to fit in in America, like. It, it mm -hmm. seems like there's a lot of parallels between those two characters. It, mm -hmm. Almost, like, almost yeah. like he's an intermediary between, uh, you know, like the village itself and and Mac. Yeah, but Mac doesn't get to stay. Yeah, well, Mac you know, he didn't, he, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't earn it. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> yeah, um, right. What would he have had to do to earn it to stay? He'd have to win a girl, right? Yeah, or find God, maybe. One of those or, things. Or convince, I guess he could have fought for it and convinced his boss to uh, find somewhere else to, to drill, but then everybody in the town would have hated him. It seemed like they were coming for Ben with like uh, pitchforks almost. Yeah, no, they were going to they yeah. were gonna tear Ben up. The townspeople were, <laughs> they almost made themselves into uh, villains. They, they were saved by uh, the, the oil executive boss. You know, yeah. They saved from themselves. It also there's that there's a weird moment where um, there's a weird switch I'd say in the movie like a, a tonal switch and that I found interesting where you know they they negotiate the the deal obviously and then Ben mm -hmm. won't give out and it seems like in the beginning of the movie the the innkeeper guy uh, like um, he it seems like he's he's a uh, like throughout the movie he's very cynical he's like oh i'm gonna make a deal i'm gonna fuck over the americans uh we're gonna pretend that we don't want to sell like he's very manipulative about that and then it seems like when the deal is finally made he's suddenly extremely sympathetic to mac and like their buddies and they suddenly share the same goals and agendas and they're like they're all pals now and it's like the the villagers that are you know when when they start coming for ben like um you know they're they're kind of just like oh we should probably do something to stop it and it's interesting that they're kind of teaming up because it seems like throughout the movie um, the innkeeper's looking down on him so much. For yeah. The first yeah. Well, it makes sense so that they would be pals once they got everything negotiated. Right. Yeah. But, but, uh, and also, uh, uh, you know, now, now the innkeeper needs McIntyre to, you know, help him with Ben. Yeah. But, but you're right. There is a tonal shift and there's like, in a way, McIntyre's earned some respect, I guess, or acceptance, um, but it's short-lived. Well, he's gotten away. drunk with them at the festival. You know, I don't. Yeah, can't, yeah. Uh... <laughs> he danced um, to the band, and <laughs> yes, he fell in love with a wee girl, <laughs> a wee lass on the shoreline. You can't, you can't hate a guy for that. <laughs> well, that's Capaldi, not not McIntyre. That's a Capaldi character who falls in love with the mermaid. No, I meant I meant he falls in love with the innkeeper's wife and says he said uh, during that Stella or whatever. Oh yeah, right, like, right. He's like, you, I love Stella. Like he's telling, which is a really that's also a funny scene because you don't know whether the guy's gonna turn around and just punch him and like like take the right. deal. And when so he's like he's like let's trade lives. I'll just you know I I'll I'll take you. And he's like he's like all right. What about what about Stella? And he's like. Oh, that's the thing I need to talk to you about. That's the thing. <laughs> he's, he's staying here with me, pal. I'm sorry. And he's like, <laughs> and he's like oh, okay. And <laughs> well, well, I mean, that's like the first real human connection he makes in the entire movie is uh, dancing with her. Because the entire time he's like, like not able to interact with people properly. It, you know, everything was always just like, there's like this weird wall of uncomfortableness. Um, you know, uh, down to like him eating the, uh, the rabbit. I'm going through a really bad breakup. And part of that was, um, you know, in my apartment, which I had to move back to my like parents' house. Like my apartment, I have my pet rabbit, uh, and I don't have that rabbit anymore. So, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, my ex, no, well, my ex, my ex has it. So when I when I when I saw the rabbit, I was like, oh, it's a it's a bunny. And then when they ate the bunny, I like I was about to start crying. I was like, don't start crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I have to tell myself not to let myself slip into uh, 
you know, that kind of weeping and thrashing about. So, yeah, I mean, I think we've said a lot about this. I mean, I don't know if you guys have uh, more thoughts you want to get into. I, I think, yeah, that- you know, there's the one thing I wish I could really land on is why those films, and maybe it's just when I saw them, but why Comfort and Joy and especially Local Hero and Gregory's Girl and Bill Forsyth seems like a significant bunch of films like he's a significant filmmaker and like uh that uh that it's like this is a classic movie that this deserves to be preserved somehow and and i don't know uh if that's just my opinion or like uh just my nostalgia or if i'm onto something there but there's a charm to local hero that if you can meet it where it is i think will move you i think it will get to you um what do you what do you think about the idea i was kind of thinking about this um it seems like i mean i don't know i don't know no one's really talked about this in terms of this movie that i could find but you know i think the the thatcher era in the uk like you know which is like their version of our reagan 80s like i think the Mm -hmm. thatcher moment started a little bit earlier there than Mm -hmm. reagan's moment did so I mean, this movie seems like a product of, of, of the 80s era. Like, uh, there's, you know, interviews where he's talking about the excess that everybody's living off of and, and, and you know, um, really, like, like just the, the, the nonstop consumption and excess and, and greed that kind of permeates throughout this era, which is something that really, um, you know, is happening in the UK probably a little bit earlier, but still around the same time. Um, do you think that the reason that it seems like it, it has a lot of, a, it seems like it has a lot more of a pertinent critique of, uh, of, of those things at you know, a little bit earlier than a lot of um, maybe than a lot of uh, U.S. films. Yeah, no, I do think that um, it's he's very directly reacting to the inequality that is emerging in the late seventies and eighties. I mean, his first film, like when he talks about his films, he talks about them along class lines, um, and his first film was about really down and out uh, Scottish youth. Um, like I was reading about it. It's that there was a line in it. It's like, you know, they have, there's a whole scene where they discuss how they tried to commit suicide and it's a comedic scene. It's like one of them says, well, I tried to drown myself with a, a mouthful of cornflakes. Um, but he said, and then the final line in the scenes is we've got to do something. I, there's got to be something more to life than trying to commit suicide. Um, uh so there was a sense of alienation and, and inequality and uh, a sense that society wasn't really holding together and things were going off the rails that, that um, Bill Forsyth was definitely commenting upon and that he felt, I think he felt and continued to feel really deeply actually as he, as his film career um, sputtered uh, you know, he became, uh, the films got darker um, and uh, Local Hero is a nice middle film where it's there's a lot of gentle humor and it's still charming and yeah he, he said something about it in uh, Criterion I guess decided that Local Hero is also good for um, preserving like Criterion did a, a bunch of retrospective stuff on it um, and in, in one of the interviews they're talking to him about he says something about um, trying to think of how he phrased it because I don't really want to pull it up and try to find it right now but uh, he phrased it like people don't really notice how dark a lot of the themes in my movies are and they get caught up in like, you know, the, like the the idealized versions of things and don't really notice that like a lot of the themes I'm going off of, even as, you know, some things are like funny and charming are actually really dark. So it feels like he he was acutely aware of that as much as um, and then felt misunderstood, I think, like his films kind of felt misunderstood and probably as his film career sputtered it, it you know, I, I could see how he would feel like he's um. He's someone that like never was understood as a filmmaker necessarily to start with. Right. There's in the movie Comfort and Joy, which the, the movie Comfort and Joy is about a DJ uh, whose um, girlfriend leaves him and who, because of that, gets involved with an ice cream truck war. He's following a girl in an ice cream truck and it, that ice cream truck gets hit by a, a, like a bunch of uh, thugs in the other ice cream truck. So they come out, they're wearing ski masks and they, they start pounding and beating it, you know, just trying to destroy this ice cream truck. <laughs> and 
it turns out it's like a mafia war between the different uh, owners of the of the ice cream trunk companies and he gets involved but in the background of that movie there's always uh, the periodically uh radio uh audio you know an, an audio track of the radio he listens to the radio in the car he works at a radio station and it's always uh you know a terrorist bombing today in you know this part of the world you know bombs fell they the u.n accused them of genocide that's all in the background through this little light comedy about an ice cream truck war and um and uh it, it that was you know so there's that that was something that the brutality of 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 the world and of the 80s i guess um was on bill forsyth's mind even as he made these gentle comedies it, he kind of does that in this movie too, um, with the environmental stuff. You know, when we first get introduced to the uh, to that oil executive, he's like, the 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 film that they're watching that they're making for the oil company is it's like there isn't much time left or something. Um, he says, uh, "We can do this in a little time because we all know that all we uh, that's a little time is all we have left." Yeah. Or something like, <laughs> <laughs> and like that's the first introduction to this Texas oil company that you really that you really get. Yeah. Um, which I mean, you know, after seeing the revelations about how long ago uh, Exxon and all those companies were doing research into uh, climate change, like you know, decades before the general public knew about it, it's it's interesting to see, I guess, those kinds of environmentalist themes playing a role in a movie, um, you know, that far back. Uh, I think, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, all the ozone controversy kind of was in the '90s, right? Like, I don't think that was necessarily going on in in, in like yeah. the '80s. It, this is a little bit before the acid rain issue. Yeah. If I remember my timelines correctly. Yeah. So it's, it's, it seems very, it seems more relevant now than ever, obviously, as the whole world gets drilled farther and, and, and deeper than, you know, that even then they thought was possible. But like all of, like a lot of the, the underlying, the underlying critiques, I guess, of greed and of, of, you know, being willing to give up your culture, like, honestly for for that greed and and the you know just the ruthless destruction of everything kind of um that that is really it's, it's a small undercurrent like in the sense of this movie feels very lighthearted and it feels very charming but like that's definitely there and those themes have gotten worse in our in you know in the world in general but like in our society and in british society and you know scottish society like really like the western world i'd say um much deeper now than they were even then I, I do kind of have a question for you guys. Uh, the um, the Russians seem to be a secret capitalist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. And, and I'm just like, is that – we're just basically saying that that's kind of – you know, is that uh, – um, and I might be using this a little wrong here, but is that, that like a type of capitalist realism that, you know, even the uh, the commies over there in the Soviet Union are uh, all secret capitalists? Uh, you know, I think that – yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty. I remember. Do you remember the uh, movie Network? Do you ever see the movie Network? I, I've not actually. Yes. Oh, I know. Oh, I know uh, of it, but I haven't seen it. I'm going to read a line um, from the movie Network, uh, so I can find it real quick. When in the movie Network, a, a, a big executive is lecturing a newsman about how naive he says i think uh i think didn't uh, stanley is. spigowski played by uh uh richard um uh what's his name from seinfeld uh kramer have the uh, do a parody of that in the movie uhf and ned Beatty plays the executive um and i'm you're sure uh, yeah you're so um he says so ned Beatty as a oil executive is telling Howard Beale, who's a newsman, not to be naive about his nationalism and his uh, democratic ideals. And he says um, at one point, we don't, we're no longer living in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations inexorably determined by immutable bylaws of, by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. And, and then it, it, there's a, this isn't here, but he says, um, what do you think the, the Soviets are doing in their uh, meetings? Think they're reading uh, the Capital or the Communist Manifesto? 
So no, they're bringing out their spreadsheets and calculating their, uh, you know, profits for the next fiscal year, just like anyone. <laughs> so that, that's, um, that I couldn't find the actual line here, but yeah, that's, and that movie was in like 1976. So by that, by 1983, most of the world didn't really look at the Soviet Union as something uh, fundamentally different from any other nation. I mean, it was except except there was Reagan. an ideological. Reagan was Reagan was the one Reagan was the one man left thinking that the. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I mean, and oh, look, obviously there were Marxist sectarians who believed in the Soviet Union in 1983, and there were. Uh, right wingers, but the kind of general consensus was that, you know, it was a bad place, but it wasn't bad in a different way than, you know, the United States is bad. It yeah, worse, you know, <laughs> just worse. And and um, consumer goods kind of at that point were flooding. Like it wasn't it wasn't by any means like the Stalinist uh, Soviet Union. You know what I mean? Like consumer goods were flooding the streets, yeah. and like it, you know, it, it, this. It's flooding might away. be overstating it, but they had them, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's um, I I don't know. I I think also there's a, a thing about I, I I like the Andy at the beginning. You said that it's kind of like a fantasy movie, like a fantasy world almost, because it seems like it, this is the fantasy world in, in which uh you know Max character and like a random guy from the Soviet Union who's literal like his fish fishing company is called like the Soviet Fishing Company or something like can can just kind of get along without you know discussing ideology and they're all kind of just like uh just hanging out and like you know because it's just at that point they're all they're all meeting in this in this uh in this village that just you know it, it feels almost like a fantasy for everybody and, and, he, really there, and he, he sings that country song too the, the russian yeah. which was brilliant because you know he sang it like a true russian would <laughs> well they're all rudderless right they're all home like i don't not homeless in the sense of like they're all homeless in the sense of like they don't have a, a homeland necessarily. They, they don't have a place where they feel like is home. So they're kind of all rudderless uh, individuals. No, but they I mean, do. They do have a place, and it's Furness. They have that place that they're yeah. in. That is their home. But they're willing to sell it. Oh, I'm, I'm, no, I'm talking about... I'm talking about like these characters like uh, like Mac and and the the Russia guys like oh I'm very rarely back home in 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 Russia like I'm usually oh out oh yeah oh yeah 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 and and, uh, and, and but the, he's and at he's home like, there and yeah but once he's there he's in a home and Mac is in a home when he's in yeah for now no so that's yeah. that's what I'm saying like these you know they all kind of find that home in this place like everybody can find a home uh, in in this in this village uh, it seems like. Because you know, obviously, like that, that the the really egotistical boss um, finds his like. Which I one more thing I want to say before this is over, uh, actually, is that he has these weird parallels to Trump that obviously weren't written intentionally. But um, mm -hmm. there's Bill Forsyth, I guess, when the Abernathy thing happened, where Trump was trying to uh, start that golf course. You know that controversy where he didn't pay anyone in Scotland for that golf course. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he wrote a thing about how the boss in uh, in the in this movie reminds him of Trump because he wants to put his name on everything. He's really upset that the company doesn't have his name on it, and he's really. Uh, and then you see the street corner though, and the street that the business is on has his name on it. So he noticed that, and he said that uh, Trump even sold the jacket, the coat from the guy. <laughs> but um, but so I I just I think that the the whole thing about everybody being kind of. Uh, rudderless in this, like, like in in regular life, like you know what I mean. Like, like the '80s have taken a toll on them to the point where, like, you know, business is their life. Like he's jet setting, um, and and the and the Russian guy is kind of like floating the seas, and they kind of find this weird connection. Like anybody, almost it feels like can find a connection. You know, the the African priest, like everybody can find some kind of connection with this village um, when they're kind of people that don't necessarily have uh, have an anchor anywhere else. And so there's like that, there's like that cultural, um, that cultural values thing where it's like, they can all find a home within that, within that culture, um, even as the world changes around them. But then at the same time, you know, the villagers are just kind of willing to sell their culture and their, and their home away. Like, it seems like uh, everybody who isn't, everybody who gets there is way more, way more likely to fight for it than the villagers are. <laughs> yeah. So my uh, uncle was a uh, commercial fisherman. And uh, one of the things he always loved uh, back in the 80s was being able to meet up with the Russians out there because, like, they wouldn't see each other for uh, anybody for a while. And so they, before they left, they'd bring, like, a big stack of blue jeans 
and like whatever else uh you know the russians wanted and they'd get like bottles of vodka and like all, all this like little soviet knickknack and so my cousins actually you know i was always jealous of my cousin you know having that tanky look in the 80s uh with all the <laughs> russian knickknacks <laughs> well listen guys i gotta run but um it oh, was great yeah. talking about local hero yeah, let's. And, uh, uh, we should do another. We should do another one of his movies sometime. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it was great. It was great. I enjoy this kind of thing. I'll I'll talk to you guys later.